So we're going to be on page 81 in the study guide. It's one of the topical discussions. So I'll give you a heads up on how the rest of the class is going to go for the Galatians part. So we only have two more sessions. So we've got Sunday and Wednesday. And the plan is on Sunday to do another topical discussion on how do we avoid the issues that the, the circumcision party fell into. And I, and I, I want to do a little bit of thinking, too, about not just the specifics of the circumcision party and where some of the Galatians were falling into, but there's something Mitch brought up, which I thought was a good point. I was also thinking through some of the other people that may have been, I'm, you know, I'm going to say enablers. Remember, there's Peter in there. And you remember what Peter, he act, there's a little hint in there about what's going on. He says, out of fear of the circumcision party. So be thinking about that as well. And then after that, we're going to end the class by doing chapter 6. And then we'll have a review at the same time. Chapter 6 should go really fast. So I'm thinking it'll probably be like half discussion of chapter 6 and then half just review. I'll give you more details when we get to that point. Uh, in chapter 5, so last time we talked about chapter 5, Paul contrasts a few things. Slave versus son, and then flesh versus spirit. Which is pretty surprising. So you think maybe being a slave in a certain sense, and there's a certain sense to which you can be a slave of Christ in the right way, and there's also a wrong way. And he says that them going back to law is like is similar to them going back into paganism, which is pretty shocking. It would be shocking for somebody who is a Jew. But if you think about it, again, we come back to this question, were they going back to the law or they're going back to some corrupted view of the law? And I really think it was a corrupted view of the law. And think of it this way. It's kind of like there are a series of things whose value is in what they're moving you toward. So if you ignore the thing they're moving you toward and just try to stay back, you miss the point of the thing. So like you're being educated to go be, I'm an engineer, so I'm just going to use that example. You're being educated to be an engineer, but you're like, you know what, I'm just going to stay in school for the rest of my life. You'll be in school for engineering, but you'll never actually do engineering, right? See the problem here, it misses the point. If you stay at home and you're 45 years old, still in your mom's basement, you haven't graduated. You're supposed to move on. That's how it's supposed to work. Or if somebody who says, you know, it's kind of like somebody who says, like, well, I want to have this wedding, but I don't really want the marriage that comes with it. It's like, okay, but if you don't want the marriage, it turns out you don't want the wedding because that's the point of the wedding. And so if you go back to the law, but you don't want what the law was supposed to do, you don't even really want the law at that point. You want something totally different. You fundamentally misunderstood it. Paul also mixes his metaphors when he talks about the works of the flesh. He compares it, he does not compare it to the works of my spirit. The works of the flesh is compared to the fruit of the spirit, which is kind of an interesting turn on this, which is kind of like how a lot of that gospel is. We do things because God has done something for us. We're not doing it to make God love us. God already loves us. We, we turn to him because we see that he loved us. And that's the point of the cross. All right, so I think that's everything. And like I said, it'll be on page 81, and then Mitch is going to kick us off with a prayer.
So I, I liked a couple things you had in your prayer. The, the discussion, like my, my key attribute is like the more discussion we have, the less I do talking, it's better for everybody. It's better for me and it's better for you. So and then guiding the class, half the time I feel like you guys are just guiding me. Like I start discussion and we just, I don't know where it's gonna go, it's gonna go somewhere. <laughs> Uh, and also, I like the focus on principles, because I think that's where, that's really what I'm going to focus on today. We're, talking about, we're going to talk about freedom in Christ. Like, what does that mean? Because I don't think I had a really keen understanding when I first became a Christian of exactly what that meant. And maybe that's probably kind of normal. Uh, that's one of the things you see as you become more mature. But I want to focus on the principles, not the issues of how does this play out in your life with the life of freedom. And let me tell you two reasons why I want to do that. One is that... There's a tendency to get so quick into the exact issues of how this plays out that we actually miss the principle. But the principle is the big thing. The second thing is that you'll, you'll be surprised to find that there are people who will agree on how you live out your life and some of the issues. They actually get there through a very different way, through a different set of principles. Okay, you can get people who say, I, I, two people both think you should do A, whatever that is, you fill in the blank. One of them says they, they think that that's just what God wants and they love God and that's why they want to do it. The other one thinks of God as kind of a slave master who's going to have this big checklist and the only way they can be saved if they get enough checklists done. They may agree in the issues, but there's another issue in there. Okay? It's kind of like if you see the two sons and both of them are mowing the lawn. One of them mows the lawn because they're like, I know my dad's coming home and I love my dad and I want him to see this freshly cut lawn because I just love him. And the second one says, my dad comes home drunk, and if I don't have the lawn mode, he beats me. They're doing the same action, but it's totally different, right? Something is, so I want to focus on that, the principle there. There was a, a movie a few years ago, and in the movie it has this priest, and this priest is talking to his daughter, and his daughter was pretty messed up. She had attempted to commit suicide, and fortunately she had failed in that attempt. And she says, you know, one day, Dad, I'm going to leave home. And then I'm going to be able to choose, and then I'll be free. And the priest looks at her, and he says, true, false. She said two things. I'm going to move away, and then I'll be able to choose, and then I'll be free. And he's saying, you might be able to choose, but it's probably not going to give you what you call freedom. And so that's the kind of thing I want to hash out today. So what does freedom in Christ really mean? So let's just start off with it. What does freedom in Christ mean? And I think a good way to think about this is, what is it freedom to, on the positive direction, and what is it freedom from? Because if you don't have freedom in Christ the way, the way that Paul works out, the way Christ works it out, there's a whole bunch of things that fill it in. That sometimes people think of freedom, it's really not. Alan. Freedom to hope and freedom from fear. Okay, freedom to hope and freedom from, oh, so you got, so you got two in the same shot. I like that. Yeah, you see that? There's both sides. There's freedom from fear, right? You, you shouldn't have fear. How many times does the New Testament say that? I mean, I don't actually know, but it's a lot. First John makes that, that is a key attribute to it. But it's a freedom to hope, okay? I, 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 that's a good one. Yes, Bob? Judgment, because Christ is 
Okay, yes, yeah, so we're free from the slavery of sin and of its consequences, right? And it, it is true, like we have a certain freedom there. So what do you think, what is that freedom, freedom from slavery? What does that mean, do you think? Or free, sorry, freedom from the slavery of sin, because he, he perceives sin as a slavery. What does that mean? Yes. Well, I think he's relating this, if I'm reading it correctly, based on the context to, of the old law to the new law. And the fact that you had a burden in the old law to keep it perfectly to be right with God, that was impossible. But now with Christ, you have freedom because we are no longer under that law, no longer a slave to that, that bondage that would require to be free because of the grace of Christ. Right, so it is freedom of the law, exactly. This is a key attribute. Like he's usually, he talks a lot about the law. So we're supposed to see this all through the lens of the law, which I think you're exactly right. Also, I like that way you put it. There's a line in East of Eden. Uh, it's a Steinbeck book. And it's a, it sounds weird, but it's actually a modern retelling of the story of Genesis, but not in a way that's really kind of kludgy. It's, it's actually pretty good. But there's a line in there where I think it was Adam Trask. And he was saying to one of the characters, he says, because now you don't have to be perfect, you're free to be good. And I like that line. If you've ever taken a class where you took a class and you, you sit there and you did the math. I mean, this was me, by the way, so I'm probably more than one of you. And I did the math and I realized I get 100% on every test. I'm never going to pass this class. You know what I did? I just stopped putting effort because what's the point? I might as well put the effort in the other things because there's, I can be perfect and I still, in that case, even if I was perfect, I wouldn't pass. So if, but if a teacher came to me and said, tell you what, I can see that you're struggling. If you really put an honest effort into this, I mean a really honest effort and you meet with me and let's just work through this, kind of like Ryan was pointing out, the teacher patiently working with you and you get an 85% on any rest stuff, I'll pass you. That I would have spent some effort on, right? That gives me the ability. I don't have to be perfect. I have to be good. I think that's the right way to look at it. I think, yes. So I think verses uh, 13 through 15 say that we can be free from fighting and devouring one another um, and free to serve one another in love. Okay, freedom from biting and devouring one another. Remember, this is what happened when I, while this new talk came in and freedom to love each other. I agree. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. 
Yeah, and this goes, this fits really nicely with which is what tripped your thought, I think, with the comment before, the Caitlin's comment about you know not free to hurt each other because the reality is what he's saying there is that you have a freedom and your freedom comes from knowledge, right? Somebody you you get it, you know something, but what do you do with it? It's like you said, sometimes that freedom can offend people because they're not there yet. I, I like how you at the end you said something about how how do you put it? You said it's freedom that works itself out so that there's weak and strong. We can still be one church. So a lot of times those who may feel like they have more freedoms, if you, if you do that through knowledge, this is what Paul says there, you have the freedom to also give up some of your freedoms so that you don't damage other people. And I think that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, to your point, doesn't Jesus actually say that? Leave your gift at the altar in Matthew chapter 5, right? Okay, go make right with your people, people who know you have ought against you. So I think you're onto something there. There's an ethic there. When you get that, you're going to see the other things. And you're right. Paul gave up his rights for others in order to move the ball forward. You know, and it's weird because I agree and disagree with the statement, depending on what you mean. I've heard some people say that, you know, we have to be careful not to just, what was the way to put it? Uh, like kind of become the weakest link or become the, you know, the, the minimum. I can't remember what the phrase is. It depends what you mean by that. Because if you mean we need to really understand what this freedom means and what this new life looks like, then I agree with you. Because we can't have somebody who just doesn't really realize that and wants to just go back to, well, I got a checklist and my checklist keeps getting bigger and I'm going to push the checklist on everybody else. If that's what you mean, I agree. We, we, have to, we have to slow that down. But the problem there is the principle, not the checklist, right? On the other hand... You have people in different areas. And Tony, I was talking to Tony, he made a really good point. He's like, do you not think that we slow ourselves down when we have little kids? We do. Every parent knows this. You don't just be like, hey, listen, you're slowing me down. I've got to keep going, so I'm just going to leave you behind. You can't do that either, though. So we've got to do something. We, we can pull people along and help move them up. And sometimes you may feel like you're going slower, but you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You're not actually slowing down if you look at it like that, like the way you're talking about uh, I saw another hand raised, yes. Um, so, another, we're freedom, we're free from worry that we are not um, doing everything that we're supposed to do, that we didn't have it messed up somewhere. So, this should give us freedom from, am I, am I on the right track? Uh, type of thing. Yeah, it's, so it's free from the worry that comes from you thinking you have to be perfect. 
And I'll tell you, so this book changed me. There's another one that changed me a lot, which is First John, which has a very similar concept in it. Because I'm like, why is it that I never feel saved? Because, you know, I'm sitting there, you, you keep building that checklist, and you're like, what if I, if I add something to my checklist, I just proved that I wasn't saved before because I didn't have my checklist right. Right? I mean, this is the problem. And you, you live in this fear, and there's, there's no way to get out of that unless you realize that the checklist mentality itself is the problem. And I wasn't looking to do anything differently, you know? I did a lot of the same things afterwards, but I had a very different mindset. I saw hand raised. Yes, David. Closely associated with the you know, freedom from the slavery of sin is the freedom to have a relationship with God. Because Isaiah 59 clearly says that our sin separates from God. And so without the freedom from sin, we can't have a Okay, that, that's a really good point. Because relationships are clearly a big deal. This is how you make sense out of it all. If our relationship with God was destroyed because of sin, that's exactly what sin does. And there's no way for us to get back. We're like that person who realizes they can never pass the test again. Right? We're saying you can map out this new life that is neither required you to go back to a checklist law mentality, but neither does it go back to licentiousness because of the relationship. But that assumes you have to be able to have a relationship. That's how it all works. <laughs> good point. I agree. Yes, right now. Yeah, I, the freedom from your past, to be able to put that behind you and to stop looking back and start looking forward is a huge deal. I mean, you've heard this thing called the labeling theory. You, if you tell somebody there's something for long enough, they actually start to almost take it on as their identity. So if you're, you're just a criminal, you're a sinner, and you just keep telling somebody that, and everybody's like, okay, that's, that's who I am, I'm just gonna live like that. But if you tell them that, no, you can have a totally different path, you can be a child of God, that can send you down an entirely different direction. Yes, sir, Alan. Okay, freedom from envy, because you actually see this problem where Paul questions whether or not the people who are trying to get the relations to go back to this law, or their view of the law, whether they're even doing it for the right reasons. And this makes sense if people are trying to just get people in their tribe. I mean, you see a lot of envy, just, just politics. I mean, you, anybody who pays any attention knows what's going on there. It's to get you in my tribe. This is precisely how you get all sorts of dissensions and problems and, you know, envy. That's just exactly what seems to be going on there. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Gideon's story, I, I love that, that point. I had COVID during that whole thing, so I wasn't here for all that. But yeah, Gideon, the angel comes up to him. Well, Gideon is basically fearfully, right, in a, in a wine press, trying to get his wheat all you know, ready. And the angel comes up and says, oh, well, what is exactly he says? I can't remember exactly what he says. Mighty man of valor. And I always imagine in my mind, he looks up and he's like, wait, me? 
<laughs> Wait, that's a second. That's not what he looks like right now. But he becomes, he gets better as time goes on. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Is Boyd? Okay. Yeah, I agree. It's like, so now you have a totally different direction. You get to be a slave to God. Now, that's interesting because he says freedom, but he also says slave to God, which sends you in a different direction. By the way, thank you for pointing out. You know, I'm, I'm trying to pay more attention to people on the edges. They're hard to see. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. See, now I'm looking for the edges. Yes, Caitlin. Yeah, free to be led by the Spirit. Yeah, part of it is we don't even really know what freedom looks like. So we have to be told what freedom looks like in a certain sense, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, if you're freed from death, think how this totally changes things. Because it's so, as soon as you free somebody from death and you realize this is one, right now is one more day stepping toward eternity, that's what gets you to start thinking about eternal things. Right? How do you think about things that go beyond this life? You have to not have death. Because if, you, if this is the life, the, the only life you have, and this is what a lot of people think, they're just going to live it up here because this is all I got. And this is all I'm going to get, so I might as well just take what I get and move on. But for us, it's a totally different direction. Yes, Raymond. Yeah, I, I, I think you're onto something because when you, you can't really explain martyrdom unless you understand why Christians are willing to give their lives. And the answer is because they see a bigger picture here. Because if, if it is not true that there is no life after death, if, if it is no life after death, then martyrs are the biggest fools in a certain sense. What did they give themselves? They gave themselves for nothing. And if, but if you don't have that, we always know that when people give their lives to somebody else, somehow... Even people who don't think there's life after death will tell you that's somehow a good thing. But I wonder, 
How does it even make sense in their worldview, right? You gave yourself for something, but you don't really think there's anything out there anyway. So what are you giving yourself for? This changes everything. And I think you're, you're right on with the way Paul's thinking about it too, because he thinks that when, the, when there's now a resurrection, it's a subversion of the earthly powers. Because those who try to use death as a tool to get you to do things, their tool has been taken from them. Right? And that's, this is precisely what happens in the early church. Yes? I think it's interesting, too, that freedom from, we, we keep saying it's freedom from and freedom to something, right? So the idea is, is that freedom from eliminates something in our lives, but it doesn't give us the freedom to not do anything. I think we still have a responsibility then to fill that void with the freedom to do something. So... I, I, yes, I think exactly right. So we have to, it's freedom from, there's a negative aspect. These things don't control you. But you can't leave a vacuum. You've got to fill it with something else. And once you see that, that's how you have that one-two punch that really makes it all fit. You do one or the other, you're going to have, you're going to have a mess. I agree. So here's an aspect. And this is, I, I thought a lot about this. There's an aspect that I think the world t- tends to, to miss. Because if you ask people in the world, they, they really haven't probably thought about this. Freedom is just a word, just, a word you just throw around. Everybody assumes they know what it means. But if you actually think about it, freedom in the world is consisted of pretty much the freedom to choose. Choose your own path. But if that's the case, let me give you a counter case, which you will implicitly realize is not freedom. But if you only have that one item in your list, it's not going to make any sense. So you have a guy walking along. He's addicted to drugs. He would like to stop, but he just, he just keeps going back and choosing to go stick himself again because it just feels so good. Is he free? If it's freedom to choose, as long as that guy has access to new needles and new drugs, he's, he's the freest man alive. June and I both know that man is not free. There was an article in The Atlantic, and the guy was talking about how San Francisco is a city that has... It's, it doesn't have laws in places you might think. Like, you could literally walk down the street completely naked. They don't have a law against it. I'm not suggesting you do this, but this is, that's, that's true. But this guy was talking about how that this whole experiment in freedom is that something is wrong with it. And he talks about how they have these, they have made it where uh, drug possessions, they, they keep pulling back the laws in it. And he says, they're not even going to really even prosecute for it. But he starts looking around and he's like, but something's missing though. Something's wrong here. He, t- he tells a story. On a cold, sunny day not too long ago, I went to see the city's new Tenderloin Center for Drug Addicts on Market Street. So if you don't know, I've been to San Francisco many times. I've been to the Tenderloin, actually. You don't go to the Tenderloin. Like, if you want to get all stabby, that's, that's just... Don't go to the Tenderloin, okay? So it's not a, not a great place. So he goes down there, and they have this area for the drug addicts. It's a downtown, open-air, chain-link enclosure in what used to be a public plaza. On the sidewalks all around it, people are lying on the ground, twitching. There's a free mobile shower, a laundry, and a bathroom emblazoned with the words, Dignity on Wheels. A young man is lying next to it, stoned, his shirt riding up, his face puffy and sunburned. Inside the enclosure, services are doled out. Food, medical care, clean syringes, referrals for housing. It's basically a safe place to shoot up. The city government saying it's trying to help, but from the outside, what it looks like is that young people are being eased into death on the sidewalk, surrounded by half-eaten lunchboxes. And he goes on and tells a story about it. There was a, one of his neighbors came to him 
And she, she said that she was walking along one day, she sees this guy, just blood coming down his face. And she's like, she recognizes him. It's the homeless man who lives nearby. And so she stops and she's like, hey, let me get you some help. She calls 911. So the ambulance shows up, the police show up, and then a homeless advocacy group shows up. And the paramedics are trying to work on him, and the homeless advocacy group says, you don't have to go with them. You have the freedom to not go with them. That's your right. And so the homeless guy says, oh, well, okay. I'll, I, guess, I guess I won't go with them. He was found dead a block away. You're free to do that. But that's not freedom, okay? This is the problem. And so I think what the missing part of it is that freedom is the ability to choose. But it has to be coupled with self-control. That's the second element. But right? if you can't control yourself, then you're not actually free. This is the problem with slavery to sin. You, you can't control yourself. This is the problem with humanity. We say we want freedom, but we, we can't even control ourselves, much less fix the world. Mitch. And that's what verse 13 is saying. That only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it, it's saying, yes, you have free will, but you need to use that wisely. Right, yeah, that's true. Verse 13 is a, a perfect description of it. And yeah, don't, so don't go back to the flesh. That's not even freedom at all. But it's, it's not a different type of freedom. It's not freedom at all. Turn it as a way to go out and bless other people, to love other people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I, and I do, I do think that I thought a lot about her comment. I do think she's right. It, is, it does seem scary to us. And I think sometimes because I suspect, I think there's a few reasons, but I suspect part of what makes us fearful about it is that it seems a little more open-ended than maybe sometimes we're comfortable with. And the way that it, it plays itself out is not always the same way. I think gifts... The gifts that God gives us make a lot more sense if you see of it, see it this way, right? Freedom to go and use your gifts. Because you know what? I don't have all the same gifts you do. You have some gifts that I don't have, and I have some that you don't have. But this all works because we use the gifts that we have to make, like Raymond said, I think a couple classes ago, not as individualists, but to help everybody get better. And so I may not be good at something you're good at, and that's fine, right? That's completely fine. Yeah, I... I Totally agree. I, I think it is kind of a scary idea. And also, I think maybe the part, missing part is that we kind of forget how we fall into the trap of thinking there's only two options, law and licentiousness. If those are the only two options, law is better, I would say. I think Paul would say that too. But if there's a third option where we have freedom, but that freedom does not look like licentiousness and it doesn't have to look like you know, a checklist, if we know that, then I think it, it starts to look a lot better and doesn't look as scary to us. Yes. A train is most free on the rails. You don't see a train going off the rails. <laughs> when it's doing what it was made for, that's when it's most free. Yeah, a, a train freed of its tracks is not free to go forward. It's just mired. You got that out of parenting class. I did too. I remembered that. I did write that down on my material. I like that. It's truly true, though. You take a train off its tracks, what happens? It just sits there. It doesn't go anywhere. 
So this kind of goes back, I think, to G.K. Chesterton's point that without fences, there is no freedom. Like, we have to know what to do and what to put our lives into. Because I'll tell you, one thing that does not feel good either is when you don't even know what to do with yourself. You have no plan, no meaning. I've read many books. It was actually uh, Emily Brewer had told me she was talking to an atheist at school. And he said he read some book called, oh man, what was it? The Myth of Sisyphus. So I went back and read it. It was written back like in the 40s. And the guy opens the book with, he's an atheist. The author of this book is an atheist. He opens the book with, I'm trying to answer the question of, if there is no God, why should you not con- commit suicide? And he basically answers that there is no meaning in life. He actually agrees with that. I mean, at one point in there, he said that art, I, I, was, I read this several times, I couldn't believe he was saying this. He said, art should not be focused on like the big things, you know, the transcendent properties. Because there's no transcendent properties. So basically, art should be pornography. Because it should be focused on the base instincts, because that's the only thing there is. I have to read this, I was like, what? He actually says that? He just eliminated art, right? All good art is not just pornography, right? But that's how he looks at it. It should be focused on base instincts, because it's the only thing we have. He's free, he thinks, to do whatever he wants, but he doesn't have any direction in life. I mean, he's like that train, mired without its tracks. What else? Yes, Raymond. I think maybe a good way to summarize what you're saying is it's freedom from this age, right? Freedom to go see that there's a whole nother age that's coming. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think sometimes people fall into that trap. I've had some people who, even though I may even agree on some of their political viewpoints, I disagree with the way they're thinking about it because I hear them say things like, you know, if this doesn't happen, it's all coming down. And I literally think like, do you think, do you think the whole church is just going to end if this proposition, whatever, doesn't go through? Do you really think that it's so small? And, and I remember somebody saying something, and it was almost like they thought, I was thinking so too small because I didn't see the big picture. It's like, no, 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 see, I think you're thinking too small. It's the other way around. There is something way bigger going on here, and I think we've, we lose sight of that sometimes. How about this? Okay.
Yeah, that I, I, I think the pessimist worldview is really destructive, and I think a lot of people almost, they almost like they seem to think that one of the fruits of the spirit is being more negative. It's like, no, 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 that, it's, that's not in the list, guys. And I like how you said it, you said, it's made it too far, the church has made it this far. I mean, guys, the church has put up with a lot of things, and it, you go back and it is just shock. And I've asked atheists, like, have you, like, please tell me what your counterproposal for how this thing called the church came from. Because they'll say, Jesus was just made up. I mean, almost no atheists who actually study this say this, but I've talked to some. You know, Jesus was just made up, and the church just made him up. I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Did Jesus make the church, or did the church make Jesus? And they're like, well, the church made Jesus. Okay, but where did the church itself come from? It makes no sense. And then you have to argue, which they'll try, it's like, well, you know, Rome kind of wanted this thing. And it, no, 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 it's not historical at all. Okay, the church put up with insane amounts of, of counter-prevailing winds, both from people in, in Israel, right, Judaism, they got resistance from that, and from the Roman government. It makes no sense. How did they win? Like, you have to believe, which is why scholars will not say this stuff, but even atheistic scholars, it just doesn't make any sense. Jesus is the pilot. Yeah. yeah, if my nation were of this world, my, my disciples would fight. It's not of this world. Yeah, so this is the thing you got to be able to explain, to your point. How did this whole thing called the church grow when it didn't grow like every other nation? Right? This is, this is Jesus' point in front of Pilate. The whole, you're supposed to read John ch chapter 17 through the end. It's clearly trying to show you the, the opposing viewpoints of how a nation gets born. Right? Jesus is trying to birth a nation that is different than any other nation. And it is shocking. So how did most nations get born? They get born by the edge of the sword. You roll out the tanks, you roll out the guns. You were all a rebellion. This nation was born by the only blood that was shed was shedding its own blood. Not by shedding other people's blood. Like, how does this make any sense? This is not how normal things get started. Yeah, it's almost like, huh, maybe it's not of this world. Maybe. What else? So I got it. Here, here, let me give you an alternative. To what degree do you agree with this? That it's freedom from lies and opinions. So here's the thing. Have you noticed that there's kind of a, a move in our culture where people will say, listen, there's no objective truth. There's no such thing as truth. Also, if you don't accept my truth, we're going to cancel you. What? <laughs> what sense does this even make? But that's how people think about it. There's, I was reading a book about how power affects people. 
And they were talking about North Korea. I had not known this before, but in North Korea, there's this theological viewpoint they call juice. And I was like, okay, I've never heard this. And according to it, what they do is they use lies, you believing lies, as loyalty tests. So the Kims that run, the, the, the dictators who run that country, they, they use it like, if, are you willing to accept something that's so obviously a lie? And if you are, we own you and we control you. So the Kims supposedly have written thousands of operas. They also invented the hamburger. Now, they, they call it double bread with meat. So supposedly the Kims invented the hamburger. It's like, what? Did they really believe this? Also, the Kims do not go to the bathroom, apparently, like under this. And so what, the guy who's explaining what's happening there is that they'll put out a lie and see if, are you willing to go along with it? And if you are, okay, that's a loyalty test. But the problem is, is that eventually everybody starts accepting that lie. So the loyalty test loses its strength because everybody accepts the lie. So you have to put on another lie that's even more extreme to see if they'll still actually follow that lie. And you keep doing that. And do, this is why they're getting crazier. Now they're inventing operas and they made the hamburger. I mean, it's utterly insane to people on the outside, which is true. But it actually serves this weird purpose. And scholars have actually isolated this and said, yeah, this is that seems to be what's going on there. Yes. Forgiveness really doesn't make sense in an atheistic worldview. It really doesn't. I mean, you should be using power to try to do something, to get something out of people. And you should, if anything, kind of wave it over them as a way to manipulate them. And freedom doesn't fit. I don't know how that freedom to forgive would really even fit into that worldview. But it's weird because implicitly everybody kind of knows this is still true, though. You're supposed to forgive because you ever heard this, this comment, and several people have said the same thing, but something roughly like when you forgive somebody else, you make them free, but in the end you found that you're the one who's actually freed by it. Like there's something in us that's, that knows that forgiveness is utterly beautiful. When you hear these stories about people who, I, I, there was this one with this guy, he was a paramedic. I believe he was, I believe he was drunk at the time. And he wound up killing somebody with his car and just completely overwhelmed with guilt. And one day he goes to the grocery store and he said it was just eating him up and he sees the father of the person who had died. And the father then comes to him, his father claimed to be a Christian, and said, I feel like I'm supposed to talk to you. And the guy just started crying because he's like, you don't understand. And the guy said, I forgive you. And he said it was freeing to the person telling him it was forgive, but it was also, on the other side, it was freeing to this other person. And then the story goes on that this, this paramedic, because he said, well, you made him feel so guilty. He said, I'm the guy who's supposed to show up to help people when they get into accidents, and I was the cause this time. 
he winds up having a relationship with the guys. So it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, that's nice and nice, and then we just separate separate ways. He winds up working with the guy, and he says, I feel like we're supposed to have, the, the father in this case, I feel like we're supposed to have a long-term relationship. And they did. And then this paramedic was, was actually, uh, was, was basically part of the family after that. Like his, this father's kids knew this paramedic like he was just one of the family. That's better for everybody, but what was this guy gonna do otherwise? Right? He's just stuck. He can't get away of his past. So it winds up, it frees everybody in this case. And, and you know, it, I've wondered how many times, you have the whole Me Too movement, you have these people do this terrible thing, and they get canceled. Well, what happens after that? They just disappear. There's no way for them to come back. I wonder, why, what, is there any way for these people to come back? And there's, there's no idea of forgiveness in this view. But we have one. Yes, sir. Yeah, there's no better example of forgiveness than what Jesus did on the cross. So what did it look like before the world? What didn't look like what it did after Jesus came? And I like it because you said, sometimes we justify holding it over somebody on the, on the basis of accountability. And all we wind up doing is enslaving ourselves. But we enslave them too. Because accountable, what's their path forward? Okay, they're accountable. So they can say, yeah, I'm accountable. What am I supposed to do? You can't move forward and they can't move forward. Everybody loses in that case. Yes. I think it's interesting that several verses after this, he goes into the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so the fruit of the Spirit is freedom, if you look at it that way. Fruit of love. Love is the freedom not to hate those that hate me, right? Self-control. This is the freedom to not do what I might want to do. And so I think we can see a form of freedom in each one of these fruits of the Spirit as well, uh, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, fruit, you want to know what freedom looks like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit, right? When you, that is a, that's that, that shift to get out of there, especially because if, you're, if you think that, kind of like that incorrect view of, well, I'm just going to hold them accountable. I'm going to hold on to that hate. Right? That's how you become a hateful person, and that's how you make sure the next generation is just as hateful as you are. You pass that pain down to the next person, and it just goes on and on and on until somebody figures it out and ends it. I also like how Jesus... You ever notice that Jesus does something unusual in that he never really argues with his opponents in a certain sense? He asked, I think it was 307 questions, but he only answers 183. So what Jesus does is that when somebody has a different view, he goes to them and he asks this question and then sits back and watches their worldview collapse. Because even they have to admit he's right. 
I mean, this is how many times he turns them on himself. It's like, okay, well, let, let me ask you this. And, then he, and boom, he just drops that bomb on him. And just watch it just crush on them. He doesn't sit there and get into it. Well, I said this. and you, he, he doesn't do that. He just crushes them because he's actually appealing to principles we all actually knew were true. We tried to answer them away, but we actually all knew they were true. So even the opponents have to wind up agreeing with them, which I just love. <laughs> you see those interactions. Yes, ma'am. That's a good point. He exposes the truth, and the truth is that something is wrong with your heart, right? Because that, that does actually fit. It's like, yes, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Yeah, nice try. <laughs> you know that's not a good reason. This is exactly what happened to the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Yeah, I like this. Jesus was clearly a rebel. He, he was, there was a Ralph, Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson who once said, he said, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are a mimicry, their passions a quotation. But Christ was not merely the supreme individualist, but he was the first individualist in history. Right? He was a rebel. You want to look at the way this world operates? Jesus did precisely the opposite. Which is exactly why he got killed in the end, right? Because he was a he was a true rebel in every right way. Okay. Thanks, y'all.